The topic that I uh, chose is the need for non-toxic fatherhood. And uh, I intentionally kind of used a little bit of a trigger phrase uh, in my topic because uh, I kind of wanted to, to get a reaction. Um, and so I want to I start by asking you a question. Uh, and you need to answer honestly for yourself. Uh, what is your initial reaction to the idea of toxic masculinity? Um, or I kind of co-opted it into toxic fatherhood. Now, I don't want necessarily your ideas about it. I just want, <clears throat> or, or even uh, if you think it's real or not, I just want you to focus on your initial reaction um, to that topic even being addressed. Um, and I think that can tell you a lot about maybe where you are um, in regards to this type of thing. Uh, and now, I, I just want to point out, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not, you know, trained in these types of things. Um, even by social media standards, I am not a psychologist. Um, but I do think that things like anecdotal, um, personal experiences um, can help to make the point. Um, so when this topic or idea is initially addressed, do you feel the need to fight uh, those feminist powers? Uh, do you just want to immediately dismiss it uh, by... Uh, and say, well, you know, boys will be boys. So that's just fake news. There's nothing. There's nothing toxic about masculinity. Um, or do you believe that there are some things associated with at least our societal common beliefs um, about manliness and fatherhood that are at least are unhealthy and could use some change? Maybe you're somewhere in the middle, um, or maybe there's even some things I didn't bring up right now um, that immediately come to your mind uh, when this type of thing is addressed. And I'm not here to, to judge anything, okay? And I'm not going to attack any of those responses. I just want you to think about it. Uh, I'm not even going to try to tell you what's the right way because I don't necessarily think there is a right way to be a man. I don't think there is a right way uh, to be a father, except if we're going to talk about the idea of being so uh, biblically. That is, being a man of God and leading our household in that way. Uh, beyond that, how you choose to worry about the details, if you will, um, is entirely up to you. Um, and that's part, I think, of the toxic uh, masculinity idea in general, um, is trying to force people into one set parameter. And, and ultimately, the biggest thing about that is that we've got to do it God's way regardless of what societal norms are because societal norms change. Um, what once was accepted as, quote, manly or, or the definition of being a father uh, isn't anymore. And, you know, vice versa. There were things that used to not be considered manly that now are. So uh, it's not about what other people and especially the world sees as manly. It's what God sees uh, that way. So the first thing we, we want to do here is define some terms. Now, <laughs> this is one of those terms that um, doesn't have a great definition, to be honest with you. Um, you know, in doing some research for this lesson, I was reading different articles and, uh, you know, you could read five different articles and, and really have five different takes on what the definition of toxic uh, manliness uh, is but there are some key traits that kind of continued to pop up here and there. Um, so, generally speaking, 
it's that kind of overbearing um, or especially uh, aggressive behavior. Uh, and generally speaking, this is towards women. Uh, there's also the general idea of uh, a desire for physical violence or a uh, predeposition to wanting that type of outlet. That is something very uh, aggressive in that as well. Uh, and then the lack of emotion or suppressed emotion uh, due to external traits or pressures. Um, and for most men, this tends to uh, manifest itself in anger issues. All right, so what we're trying to do here, is, as I said before, is not define the type of manliness, um, but try to help us all to recognize what could be some toxic traits um, for ourselves so that we can not only see those things, but ideally that we can change them. We can work on those um, and, and become better men and better fathers. Um, and there is no such thing as the ideal father, as far as there is no, uh, set thing that we've got to fit ourselves into. Uh, we just need to focus on doing it God's way. All right. So let's talk about a, a few examples here. Uh, I got five little things that I just want to kind of challenge your, your brains with here. So first of all, uh, talking about some of those societal norms that change, it used to be that dad was never in the delivery room and him being there was a blow to his manliness. But now, nowadays, that's basically been reversed, right? That if dad's not there, um, that's somehow a blow to his manliness. Now, does that really mean that being a man or being a father is dependent upon uh, whether or not you're in a specific room at the time of your child's birth. Um, you know, see, these are some of those things that are just kind of, they don't really work. All right. So number two, say dad knows everything about us, maybe a specific sport, or maybe he just knows a whole lot about a bunch of different sports. Okay. Now what about the dad who doesn't know a basketball from a hockey puck? Are either of these men more manly? Are either of these men a better father simply because they know some things about stuff like sports? Okay, number three. Uh, dad, number one, can tear down the engine of the family car in the driveway and rebuild it with ease without even watching a single YouTube video. Uh, dad, number two, has to take the car to the dealership because he doesn't even know what a box end wrench is. Okay. Does that define our manliness? Does that define who's a good father? All right, number four. Dad can hunt, fish, clean, cook, and grill anything with nothing but a Leatherman. He'll start the fire with his bare hands if he has to. And with enough time, he can make, he can make anything happen. Or dad number two, you know, he can barely run the grill uh, the chicken's always medium rare, and for the safety of the family, it's probably better just to order pizza. Okay? Well, do those things define fatherhood? Does that make you a good or a bad dad? All right, so number five. Dad number one, he can coordinate that outfit like a pro. He knows how to French braid. He can do updos. He can tell the difference between cyan and royal blue. Dad number two... He's got like five t-shirts 
Everything is one of five colors, and plaid is fancy. So who's the who's the man? Who's the better father in that scenario? See, the, I'm, I'm saying these things because I want to kind of challenge some of those things that maybe we don't even realize it, but society has kind of programmed our brains to, to look at some of these things and say, well, that's a man. And none of those things that we just mentioned, either side, whether you are dad number one or dad number two or somewhere in between, uh, defines you as a man. And, I, you know, there again, maybe you're in the middle of any one of those. Does that mean you're only partially manly? You know, it's just kind of silly uh, sometimes the way that we allow other people to influence uh, our definitions in this way. Now, looking at the biblical side of things, because, of course, this is a, a spiritual uh, workshop, so it's important that we do look at the, the biblical side. Um, you know, one of the things that I always find interesting and somewhat challenging is that the Bible's not exactly like chock full of what we would necessarily consider role model fathers. There's a lot of fathers and there's a lot of guys that are out there trying to do it the best way, but, you know, a lot of them have some flaws <laughs> and some pretty big ones. Um, and that, not that that's bad because, well, we're flawed too. And I think sometimes that's going to be helpful to us because, you know, again, there's not this like perf perfect guy that we've got to try to live up to. We can, we can make mistakes and still be acceptable um, just like these guys were. So looking now uh, at, I want to look at two major examples, uh, and I'm going to bring in some other people uh, kind of as we go here, but the first example I want to look at is David. Now, David is undeniably human. He is a man that is flawed in many ways, given to passions, fears, and even deceit at times, but he's also described in Acts chapter 13 as a man after God's own heart. So there's little denying that David is a man's man, right? He was a decorated general. He, from the time he was a young man, he was going to war. He was fighting. Uh, you know, he killed Goliath with his own sword. Uh, I, I'm, I'm think, you know, I think about the, the songs that were sung about David, you know, 1 Samuel chapter 18. Uh, Saul killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Uh, you know, David for the dowry for... Uh, Saul's uh, daughter, his first wife, he had to, he killed and forcibly circumcised 200 Philistine men. Dude was hardcore, okay? Uh, however, this isn't all that defined David. Uh, this is also a man who had an amazingly close friendship with another man named Jonathan, Saul's son. And in fact, uh, looking at 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 and 2, it says, now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Now I'd encourage you to just read through on your own uh, chapters 18, 19, and 20 of 1 Samuel. This isn't the only chapters that deal with the relationship between David and, and Jonathan, but uh, this is really kind of the heart of it in, in a biblical sense. Um, and look at that closeness that David and Jonathan uh, had. Now, having a close personal relationship, a relationship that, that the Bible itself uh, describes as having their souls knit together, never put either of their manhoods in jeopardy. 
you know, ne- ne- not one time in the biblical text does it say no homo. Okay? Uh, there's no there's no need for that. Um, there's no closeted homosexuality, hex, homosexuality, excuse me. There was love and respect between two men. And yet when two men share this type of thing, our society tells us, well, they've got to be gay or they've got to be in love or why? So let me challenge you a little bit. Do you have this kind of closeness with another man? It's not easy. I'll, I'll, I'll admit it. Um, are you able to talk with other men about things that go beyond sports and cars, the weather and etc.? And are you really able to talk about life and especially difficulties that you're having? Are you able to get really personal, really focus on you and them and, and what it really is uh, to have this type of relationship? Uh, you know, we need to be able and willing to do these things for each other. All right. So one more example from David, the Psalms. David wrote dozens of Psalms and he addressed them song uh, in prayer, his own fears, his failings, sin, gratitude for God's blessing, joy, love for God and love for uh, God's people. And by the way, that's just the first 10 Psalms. And it doesn't make him effeminate because he expressed himself in this way. It doesn't make David less of the battle warrior. It doesn't make him less of a warrior king because he let his emotions flow in this way. Uh, You add to this Psalms like Psalm 51, and there we see a man who's not willing only to say, oh, I'm sorry, but a man who's willing to beg and seek true forgiveness. Now, granted, it's from God, but at the same time, he's a man that was that, that wanted and was willing to, to, to try to fix what he had broken in that relationship. And we need to be people, we need to be men who do those things as well. Uh, and getting now to the fatherhood thing, our children need to see this, okay? Our, chi- our, our children, our children need to see us express emotion and closeness to others. They need us to be able to make those connections because they're going to look to us to learn how to do this for themselves. Uh, But also they need us to do this for our own mental health. Okay, our kids need us to have these connections. Our kids need us to have these outlets so that it makes us better people and it makes us healthier in so many ways. Um, You know, and especially when it comes to emotion. Uh, I'm a stoic guy. Uh, I've developed this, and I've unfortunately, I say unfortunately because I, I don't think it's the healthiest part of, of me emotionally, um, but I've passed it on to my son. Now, he comes by it a little bit more naturally, but it's something that we're both working to overcome is is admitting at times that we're feeling. And not only are we feeling, but we're feeling very strongly. Maybe there's times that we're very, both of us can be extremely passionate about something and, you know, you'd never know it by looking at our face. And it's, be, but it's become part of being a man after God's own heart is learning um, that a man can show emotion in a healthy way. Um, and uh, having emotional, emotionally fulfilling relationships with our families, friends, and especially God will make us better men.
All right, so example number two, moving kind of quick here, Peter. Now, Peter may not have jumped to your mind in, uh, uh, right away as a father because it's not really addressed a whole lot in the Bible about Peter being a father. But in 1 Peter 5, uh, he addresses the fellow elders of the church. This indicates his own involvement in the eldership. We know Peter had a mother-in-law. Uh, and so, you know, one of the requirements, of course, for being an elder is having believing children. Now, just because there's not a huge uh, bunch of anecdotal evidence for Peter, I don't think that we, we can ex necessarily exclude him just on that. So let's take a look at uh, Peter's role as an elder. Now, his children had to be upstanding people and Christians. First uh, Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1. And this doesn't happen by accident. Now, we're not going to get into the whole debate about how many kids do you have to have? Do they all have to be believed? Okay, we're not going to go there. The, the focus on those texts is that Peter ruled his house well. He had to teach his children to be disciples. Regardless of all those other things, failure to be a spiritual leader in our house will not equip our children to be disciples. Um, this isn't a new concept. This goes back even the Old Testament passages like Deuteronomy 6, Proverbs 22, uh, and verse 6. And just take a minute on that, that verse from Proverbs where Solomon, another father, is trying to pass on some wisdom to his son. And it says there, if you train up a child in the way he should go, when he is old, he will not depart from it. And some people misapply that to say, well, if you teach a child you know, the five steps of salvation and the acts of worship. And, uh, you know, if we read the parables of Jesus every night, they'll never fall away. And that's not what it's saying. In fact, it could be translated as uh, train up a child in the way they are going. And so it's kind of that idea that our children are individuals. Um, and just like the, the requirements for the eldership, it's the idea of understanding that and understanding that our children are going to be different. Um, not just if you have a boy and a girl, but even if you have multiple boys, multiple girls, they're individuals. And so we cannot treat our children um, like cattle or statistics, but as souls, as individuals who need training and guidance. Um, and so that's one of those things that, you know, even if we never live, make it to that point where we ourselves are elders in the church, we need to be trying to live to that standard as Christian men. And one of those things is helping our children to learn and to grow so that they can be successful spiritually. Regardless of, you know, their successes physically, we need to be focused first and foremost on their success from a spiritual standpoint. All right, now looking at Peter's teaching on the family. Now, Peter doesn't address the father-child relationship directly, but he does address a relationship that is uh, almost as important. And that's really the relationship between the father and the mother. Now, biblically, this is always addressed as husband and wife. And in an ideal world, that's the relationship that children enter into is with a, uh, a father and a mother who are married to one another. But we don't live in an ideal world. And so, you know, we understand that. And so even if you're not married to your children's mother, you need to understand that the way that you treat her is going to affect your children. Uh, both in the moment and in the way that they themselves are then going to carry out their version of this relationship. Uh, Peter addresses this in 1 Peter chapter 3, and yes, he begins that chapter with an admonition for women, for wives to be submissive, um, but this is not about being uh, domineering or overbearing towards our, our wives or, or significant others. Look at chapters, or excuse me, verse 7 of that chapter, uh, and it says that we are to 
love her and be tender and treat her with a uh, as the weaker vessel. We have to be strong while understanding and gentle because our our women need that type of leadership. They don't need harshness. They don't need a dictator. Um, they need somebody who understands them and loves them and cares for them. Uh, there's a mistake in our world that, that gentleness is weakness. Um, now, he's still head of the household. He's supposed to lead. He's just not supposed to be a despot. He's not supposed to be somebody who just runs roughshod over the rest of the family. Uh, to sum it up, if your kids and wife have to walk around on eggshells, you are creating a toxic environment for them. Uh, and in fact, P uh, Peter sums it up in verses 8 and 9 of that chapter. And he says, To all of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Remember, first of all, that we are Christians and we are held to that higher level of standard of behavior especially with our families. Now, Peter was often impetuous. He was occasionally fearful, and he spoke unthinkingly at times. But he was also the only one with the courage to get out of the boat in a stormy sea, and he was the first to confess Christ. And so, he, you know, again, we can learn a lot from this man about how to be a, a biblical father. So to kind of bring it all together, go back to our opening, some of those behaviors that the world calls toxic uh, or man, excuse me, calls manly are toxic. And, uh, you know, like these biblical examples, we're not going to cut, you know, make up or live up to that standard all of the time. But we have our responsibility to our families uh, and to our God to be better than the world and to hold ourselves to his standard. Um, we have no right to judge another man's manliness or fatherhood by any other standard than is he living godly and is he doing his best to lead his family in that way? Uh, we are not to be abusive, derogative jerks, but faithful, if imperfect, followers trying to be non-toxic followers. Or fathers, excuse me. Uh, 